Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an entrepreneur whose latest business venture uses artificial intelligence to match customers and employees, but who is keen to dispel some of the myths about the technology. You know, this hype about robots taking over control of mankind and the singularity approaching in 20 years, that sells a lot of press and a lot of media attention. But in reality, people have been saying that that horizon is 20 years away for the last 50 years. (laughs) Every time you get out of bed, there's a science fiction version of this. That was Zia Chishti, chief executive of Affinity. He came into the studio recently to tell me his story and offer his thoughts on the do's and don'ts of investing in AI and why it is an evolutionary rather than a revolutionary technology. Welcome, Zia. Thank you, John. Tell us about your business background. How did you end up where you are today? I was an undergraduate student at Columbia University in New York City, where I studied computer science and economics. Uh, proved to be a propitious uh, choice of subjects back in the 80s. I joined Morgan Stanley as a young financial analyst uh, immediately after college. Did that for three years in New York and London. Then went to Stanford Business School. This was in the mid-90s, after which uh, I started a company called Align Technology, which bizarrely straightens teeth. Proved to be very successful. Today it's worth, I think, the better part of $30 billion, give or take change. I took it public in the early 80s, in 01 to be precise. Left in 2002, founded a private equity firm called TRG, which today is fiduciary to some $2 billion in assets, give or take. And that's a Pakistan-listed company. The Pakistan-listed component is a capital contributor to TRG. So mm-hmm. like KKR has a couple of listed entities that have raised money, so do we. Uh, that's uh, the TRG Pakistan vehicle. But uh, TRG is really a Bermuda company. It's just a money management business that invests in the business process outsourcing sector. So it's quite a leap from those kind of businesses to AI. So how did that come about? Actually, there is a link. The Align Technology business was a lot about vision, machine vision, and robotics. So how do you recognize teeth and how do you move them in space? Which in the blush of the use of the term AI these days would be loosely accounted for in that category. So there is an intellectual link that goes all the way back to the Align days. But more prominently, Align built the first offshore call center in South Asia back in the mid-90s when we started running ads on television for straightening teeth without braces. And those calls would flow to my hometown in Lahore, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the course of building Align, we both built uh, AI slash machine learning slash machine vision slash robotics business and also built a set of call centers. So was Affinity in a way that you had come up with a solution and then you were looking for other problems to apply it to? I wouldn't say it happened that way. When I left to start TRG, because we had some experience in offshore call centers through by line days, we started buying businesses that were call centers or akin to them. So we invested in the business process outsourcing industry. Turns out that these are not great companies to buy and own. They're actually very commoditized. Buyers have a lot of power, suppliers don't. So our assets weren't doing the best. The portfolio was struggling a bit. This is about 10, 12 years ago. And we thought, okay, how do we go about optimizing what we have? Can we apply technology to these businesses to make them do better? And we basically concluded that we couldn't, that the whole origination slash supply slash delivery chain was really heavily optimized and commoditized except for this one point in the value chain where calls are actually distributed to agents. 
So we said, okay, well, the historic way of doing that is just what's called automated call distribution, or ACD, where calls just went to whoever's been waiting the longest. Mm -hmm. So our application of technology was, can you pair agents and callers better if you have some behavioral information about them? Can you give our listeners a sense of how that works in practice? Yeah, so if a call comes into a call center, generally it gets handled in the order received. So the longest waiting call will be assigned to the agent that has been waiting the longest. In our world, when a call comes in, we examine who is calling, usually by virtue of phone number, access a bunch of databases, internal and external, project the behavior of that caller, do the same for the agents that are in the population that we're optimizing, and then fit based on that. What are the variables for the agents? For the agents, we just look at their last 100,000, 10,000 interactions, because almost all of them are with unique individuals. Very unlikely, if I was an agent, John, that I would take 1,000 calls just from you. So I'd get a spread of callers over my career with a particular call center. And I can use the spread in that set of interactions and the outcomes of those interactions to predict agent behavior in the future as a result. So now I can predict agent behavior, I can predict caller behavior given their phone number, and then I can run a machine learning process on top of that to daily decipher what kinds of interactions are effective and then orient towards more of those. What are the benefits of this more efficient pairing? By far the biggest benefit is around revenue creation for our clients. So our biggest industry vertical is telecom. And a lot of telecom customers still conduct a lot of their business over the phone. In fact, most of our clients have between a half and three quarters of their revenue transacted over the telephone. So if we can nudge those numbers by four, five, six percent, it has a walloping impact on the bottom line. We all have the impression that everything is moving online into the digital world, mm. but is that not true? So a couple of statistics. If you look at the aggregate volume of goods sold over the internet in North America last year, that number was around 700 billion. The equivalent figure for the phone channel, best estimate, is around 2 trillion. So the answer is no. The phone channel is growing at approximately 3 4% a year, so a little over nominal GDP. The internet's growing 8 9% a year. So if you apply 4% on 2 trillion, that's 80 billion of growth a year, whereas 9% on 700 is just 63. So the actual gross growth rate is still bigger in the phone channel than the internet, and those lines won't converge for a very long time. How do you get paid in this? Very peculiarly, actually. So we don't charge for hardware or software or professional services or SaaS revenue or maintenance or our clients don't invest anything. We charge on the incremental revenue that we deliver. So we run our systems on for 20 minutes, off for five minutes, on for 20 minutes, off for five minutes. And we continuously cycle in this fashion. And at the end of every month, our clients contrast the two data samples, our systems on versus our systems off. The delta between the two is attributable to us, 100 million, say, in a given month. And then we would get a share or a commission of that. And that applies for revenue, but also cost metrics. So claims in an insurance company or collections for a financial services company, they all work the same way. And you were mentioning that you're using this in the telecoms industry at the moment. Mm. What are the other areas that call centers are begin and that you can improve the performance of the matching? Insurance, for example, big user of contact centers, retail financial services, banks, hospitality, travel companies, utilities are very big, consumer electronics. Um, little known fact, uh, Amazon has made a major push into the world of call centers. So hmm. 
I think the light bulb is that revenue conversion rates in call centers are at least one order of magnitude higher than online and possibly two orders of magnitude. So if you go to a website, you're about somewhere between one-tenth and one-one-hundredth as likely to buy something as if you talk to a human being. So revenue-intensive applications are actually J-curve shifting towards the phone. I think it's uh, the academic Joshua Gans who's written a book on AI and said one of the best ways of imagining what it does is as improving predictability. They're great prediction machines. Is that right, do you think? Yeah, I think that's correct. There's a lot of hype, as you know, John, around the whole AI sector. And when you part the clouds, you really have to reach for something that's quite distilled, such as that, which is what does it do really? It finds patterns in large amounts of data. That's the heart of AI. As long as you discern it down to that level of specificity, I think that's an apt description. Okay. And how is uh, Affinity going to develop? I mean, you had a Series D fundraising last year on a private valuation of about $1.6 billion. You heading for an IPO this year? Yeah, I think so. We have now grown to the scale where pushing about 100 million revenue run rate in the business and have just turned EBITDA positive and soon to be earnings positive. So we're at a scale where we should access the public capital markets. And I think the plan is to do that sometime later this year. And how have you been funded so far? Well, we have raised a lot of capital, I think uh, north of 100 million so far. Throwing in debt, I think it's approaching 200 million in capital raised. The bulk of that uh, on the equity side came from my old firm, TRG, which I think still owns more than half the business. We raised some money from McKinsey & Company, a very peculiar investment for them. I think one of maybe two investments that they've made uh, on the firm's balance sheet over the years. We raised money from GAM right here in London, uh, Global Asset Management, uh, and then a very powerful set of luminaries, individual investors in the business. So, As you say, that's quite a strange investment for McKinsey to make. What's their thinking? So McKinsey's evolving as a firm. I think their historic business uh, which is strategy consulting, uh, is a very powerful and dominant franchise in the world. But part of the puzzle is if you're the number one market share leader, it becomes hard to grow the top line much beyond the organic growth rate of the business, which is now in single digits. So I think for McKinsey uh, as a firm to continue to prosper, they made the determination that they need to diversify what they do. And one of the diversifications was around building either in-house or acquiring through relationships like ours, digital or optimization technologies for their clients. And they, I think, looked at us and thought that this is one that had measurable and large-scale. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Impact and so became part of our adventure. One of the fascinating aspects of Affinity is your very strong presence in Pakistan, which is where you grew up. Pakistan generally tends to get a pretty terrible press. I think the economists called it the world's most dangerous place. What's it like doing business there? <laughs> um, excuse me, John. Whenever I hear that, I get a chuckle because the most violent city in Pakistan is Karachi. And if you actually compare the rate of violent crime per 100,000, it's somewhat comparable to Seattle and certainly vastly less than Chicago. <laughs> so whenever we get the epithet of being dangerous, I think 
you know, oddly for The Economist, which I respect enormously, I think they need to check their statistics <laughs> before they make such claims. I think part of the puzzle has to do with the specificity of violence, right? So if there's a terrorist attack in a school and 100 kids die, statistically on a population of 200 million, it's irrelevant. But in terms of capturing the imagination and fervor, it's quite dramatic. So the impact of terrorism in that sense looms much larger than the reality of it in the country, which is extremely safe. And I think people are, when they actually visit, they realize it's not as the press may have it seem. That's also one of the kind of really interesting aspects of AI at the moment. I mean, there are two schools of thought about whether it's going to entrench corporate power or whether it's going to lead to more distributed, decentralized corporate power. And it's going to benefit up and coming countries like Pakistan is it going to be a democratizing technology or is it going to be the reverse? I generally think, John, that the whole push towards AI is overblown to the extent that that peculiar distinction, is it centralizing or democratizing, we're way ahead of making that determination. So right now, AI, when you boil away all the ether around it, is really about pattern recognition in very limited spheres. Uh, you know, So it's finding hydrocarbons more efficiently or maybe reviewing medical images more efficiently to find evidence of cancer or other tumor activity, or in our case, finding behavioral patterns between customers and agents, to leap into the world of philosophy. You know, is it democratizing or is it centralizing of power? That's way early. Uh, I think uh, those decisions are decades away. So you, your view very strongly is it's more of an evolutionary tool than a revolutionary tool. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this hype about robots taking over control of mankind and the singularity approaching in 20 years. That sells a lot of press and gets a lot of media attention. But in reality, people have been saying that that horizon is 20 years away for the last 50 years. <laughs> so every time you get out of bed, there's a science fiction version of this. I met uh, Geron Lanier recently, and he says that uh, AI is a story invented by computer scientists to get funding from government agency. AI is a fantasy, nothing but a story we tell ourselves about our code. Does that sound about right? It's much more lyrical than I would have framed it. But to that rather strong insight, I would add that it's also a mechanism of prying money out of gullible venture capitalists. So <laughs> these days, if you tack AI onto whatever you're doing, somehow that opens the floodgates of funding. And th this is a process that we've seen repeatedly in the more fanciful areas of the capital markets where big industries are funded in such a way and the wheat is separated from the chaff sooner or later, and you boil down to what actually makes a difference. So we're in the in the thickets of that right now, where AI has somehow mesmerized the capital markets, but that will soon too pass. One area where domain-specific pattern recognition could be of real interest is in your former industry of the financial services. I mean, any number of people are piling into applying AI to investing or banking. What do you make of that trend? Is this for real? I think the use of AI in that industry may be conflated with the general transformation of that industry over time. So a very reasonable question is, what does the whole financial sector do these days? You know, if you look at the returns to actively managed funds, they almost routinely underperform passively managed index funds. So it's a rather odd peculiarity about the capital markets that big sectors of that continue to exist. So to the extent that AI takes over the automation of those pieces of the market. It's a natural evolution. I wouldn't put anything remarkable to it other than to say that there are big chunks of the capital markets that shouldn't exist anyways. And so that transition over time, I think, 
uh, may be twinned with the evolution of AI, but wouldn't be driven by it. I think that's inherent in the inefficiency of the industry itself. All right. So let's spool forward for five, ten years. Where do you think AI is going to be applied? What are the business cases that can be made during that time frame? Think of areas where you have large amounts of data, where you're trying to find patterns where the outcome of that pattern recognition process is some high value. In hydrocarbons, it's oil. Um, in med- medical images, it's a tumor. In us, it's a behavioral fit. So anywhere you have a high-value outcome that you can distill from surveying a large sea of data, that's where AI is going to have an impact. So in a way, it's best viewed as a kind of incremental process improvement. Yeah, I, I tend to think of it as one of an arc of improvements. If you go back to the 80s, you came up with VisiCalc. Uh, which is a very useful pattern recognition tool. You can actually now put numbers into a spreadsheet and find money. If you advance that 10 years into the 90s, you had Microsoft Excel and Bigora. Now you can uh, fit a, a visual chart to the spreadsheet where you can show columns, and that gives you more insight into some pattern in the data. And then you fast forward into the 2000s, and you start doing things like R, where you have genetic algorithms or neural nets that you can run on top of larger and larger data sets and find more and more sophisticated patterns. So this whole AI arc is just applying more powerful techniques to larger sets of data. But that process of power and techniques and increase in data sets has been approximately the same order of magnitude now for decades. There's nothing remarkable in this evolutionary process. You don't think that the increasing computing power will take this to another level, that there will be a step change when we have quantum computing? Ah, so let me tease apart quantum computing from the general increase in computational power. There's this sense that as computational power advances, it advances to this point where suddenly robots have more brains than we do, and then they become our overlords. And this is obviously very sensational. But it doesn't quite work that way. So there's actually two paths of evolution that we have to consider. One is the number crunching capacity, you know, how dense chips are, how many calculations can you do per second, which is largely subject to Moore's law and has been for the last couple of decades. And that's the rise of computational capacity you see in general. The other aspect of this is algorithmic complexity. What is the set of algorithmic tools that you have that allow you to analyze data in new and peculiar ways? And the answer is that's roughly linear in progress, if not sublinear in progress over the last 30 years. So you look at what's now affectionately called deep learning. Well, that's just neural networks, which existed four decades ago. Maybe they're deeper, you have more layers in a neural network, but the fundamental technology is really unchanged. Backpropagation trained neural networks were around comfortably in the 80s when I was an undergraduate in college. So I don't think there's anything on the algorithmic side that's anything that exceeds linear. And ultimately, that decides the step change. So the notion that you have a processing capacity that's a thousand times where we are a decade hence would suddenly lead to some breakthrough in a machine's ability to think is just flawed because you don't have the underlying algorithmic development to suit. If you're uh, running a a large corporation nowadays and you hear all of this hype, as you're talking about, around AI, what should they be thinking about how they could apply it to improve their businesses? Do's and don'ts. So the, the don't is please, 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 if you're a large company CEO, don't fall for IBM flying in and saying you must do big data and you must do AI. And then the CEO launches a $100 million 
big data initiative or AI initiative within their firm. And a lot of slides get generated and teams are constructed and people scurry around apparently doing stuff. But three years later, there's no output and the world has moved on and you just repurpose the team and you sort of promptly forget that you spent a hundred million. That's the worst thing. Unfortunately, it's also very dominant. It happens all the time in large enterprises. So that's the don't. Don't You don't get seduced by a generic idea of big data and AI and uh, spend a lot of firm time trying to solve for that because that doesn't mean anything. Um, it's around use cases. Do you have a specific use case that you can articulate to a 12-year-old and have them go, okay, I get that. And does it make a lot of money? You know, Can you say, okay, at the end of this implementation, I'm going to make X billion more in my enterprise. Great. And can you measure it? Right. So is there a mechanism, a reliable mechanism by which you can say, here's how I calculated that extra billion I made. All of those are critical components. I recognize I'm stating a bit of the obvious, but I think when you're in the midst of a maelstrom of hype like you are right now, getting back to the basics is quite important. Just going back to Affinity and your core product, if I'm an agent on a, a phone call and I know that your program is running in the background, it, it's a pretty phenomenal checking mechanism on my efficiency as a call agent, isn't it? Are people not freaked out by having your technology running in the background? So actually, you'd be surprised, but contact centers are quite efficient about how they metric their employees. I don't think I've really run into a large enterprise call center where they don't have a reasonably good handle on how their staff are doing. So I don't think that as a company, we add any more glaring insights as to aggregate performance relative to what our clients already have. Now, in that sense, our agents don't get any more freaked out as a result of introduction. Where we are a little more controversial is in as much as we can give insights as to what types of customers an agent is more likely to do well with. And that can be a little unnerving. So we actually steer clear of that debate. So rather than furnishing that on a proactive basis to our clients such that they can then use that to curate the nature of calls that they're getting or the types of agents that they have, we just let that one go and let our clients do what they do best, which is hire, train, recruit, compensate, motivate their staff. And our side, we're the box that sits next to their existing box and changes how calls flow. So if I'm a subscriber to Sky, for example, mm -hmm. and I call up, would I know that I am being sifted, as it were, and directed to a particular agent? Completely invisible to you, completely invisible to the agent that takes your call. So you don't feel anything different about your experience. Uh, you go through the same IVR, you press the same buttons, but rather than getting posted into a queue from which you would be mechanically removed and assigned, we work some magic and change the pairing that you receive in the environment. Okay, we must leave it there, but thank you so much, Steve. Delighted, thank you, John. Thanks for listening. We've been asking our listeners to contribute to an informal survey on overrated and underrated technologies, potential threats to the tech industry, and what non-tech book provides the best insight into the impact of technology on our societies. If you'd like to take part, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode? We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Sam Westron and Fiona Simon.